Leviticus chapter 1. Love for you to join along and follow with us. Leviticus chapter 1 for our first study of 2022. It's always sad to see the Christmas season go. We love to celebrate the gift God gave us. Uh, I'm sure you had your schedules full of lots and lots of different Christmas activities. And as Christians, evangelicals, we proclaim the coming of Jesus Christ. Why did God come to earth? In popular culture and older mythologies, sometimes we see stories of the gods coming to earth because they're curious to see what human beings are up to, or they're in some way enamored of the things that we do, or because they're just bored up on Mount Olympus, whatever they do up there. But that's not why God, the real God, came to earth. He, of course, came to be God's gift to us. The father sent his son, born that man no more may die. Big deal. God did not come for uh, any small reason or any insignificant reason. He came because humanity needed a savior. Came on a life-saving mission to bring a cure that we all need, each and every person who has ever lived on the earth. These days we sometimes talk about or we hear people talking about racing to find the cure, the race to find the cure. Usually there are actual running events or races that you can be a part of to raise money for different research teams. Uh, Perhaps you guys have been involved in the race to find a cure for cancer or the race to cure arthritis. That's another one I found online. The Michael J. Fox Foundation has teams that race to cure Parkinson's. In 2015, journalists were talking and reporting about the race to cure Ebola, We don't seem to care very much about that anymore. Now, of course, it's all about the coronavirus. Those are all worthy endeavors. But for all the thousands of years of human history, we have made no progress on the greatest plague of all. And it's a plague called sin. Sin is the reason for all of the death and all of the sickness and all of the suffering and all of the hatred and all of the violence and all of the sorrow in this universe. It is the original plague which infects every one of us. Now, humanity over the centuries has tried a lot of different ways to deal with what sin does, to deal with this plague and this affliction. Uh, We've tried to legislate it away in different ways. We've tried to ignore it, pretend it's not happening, or even just accepting it, saying, hey, this is good, it's not bad. But as we look around, we find that the world is just as sick as ever. And that's because for this problem, for this plague, there is only one cure. And the cure has to come from someone who's not infected. And that's a problem because ever since our original parents, Adam and Eve, every single human being has been born a sinner. There's a rare condition, a blood condition called diamond black fan anemia. It's a, a blood disorder where, uh, that a person is born with and your, your blood can't create red blood cells, that, that life-sustaining, uh, life-necessary part of your blood. And like certain other conditions, it is one of these diseases that has just one cure. There are some treatments that a, a small child with diamond black fan anemia can, can have, short-term uh, treatments where they can forestall death for a while. And typically it's blood transfusions. They go in and they get transfusion after transfusion after transfusion every few weeks. And that will put off the inevitable uh, death from this disorder for a while. But in the end, there's really just one cure. And that is a full bone marrow transplant from an uncontaminated donor. Now, Christ 
came to die so that we could have our sins dealt with and forgiven. That was always the plan from eternity past. And in the centuries leading up to Christ's arrival, God interacted with his people in ways that demonstrated and foreshadowed what the Messiah would do. He, he built in an understanding so that when the Messiah came, we would recognize him as human beings and say, oh, this is the promised one come to take away our sin and come to make right what we have done wrong. And leading up to that time, God's work of redemption, God's plan for salvation takes a long time. And leading up to that, he, he gathered a people together, the nation of Israel. And he says, hey, I'm going to interact with you in certain ways. I'm going to work in your midst in certain ways that will foreshadow the work of the Messiah. And he did these different things that would work as object lessons for them and for the wider world and for the rest of human history. But it wasn't just that God was doing things with Israel that were object lessons. It wasn't just instructional. He also instituted these systems by which the sin of people could be temporarily dealt with. Not unlike how people buy things on credit with the payment being made later. So leading up to the coming of Christ, people were still sinners. God was still holy. He still wanted to have interaction with them. And he said, okay, we have to do something to cover over your sin for a time, not sweep it under a rug, but cover it, deal with it so that you can be in relationship with me so that we can be in nearness together. And so I'm going to do these things that will for a time cover over your sin and also point the way to the coming Messiah And it worked kind of like buying something on credit as they looked forward to the coming Christ. It also worked kind of like a a blood transfusion for someone who suffers from diamond black fan anemia. It didn't take care of the issue altogether, but as they would go through these different systems and these rituals that we read about in the Old Testament, they were able to commune with God the way that he had instructed them. And so... This system that God established in the Old Testament was a sacrificial system. It's sometimes called the Levitical law or the law of Moses. In this system, man was able to stay in relationship with God personally and nationally through a code of holiness and animal sacrifice. Now, it wasn't the sacrifice that saved a person. A a person in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament wasn't saved because they brought a lamb or a bull to the tabernacle. No, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, the Bible says. God has always saved by grace through faith. But as believers participated in this arrangement that we read about in the law of Moses, they were able to temporarily cover their sin and look forward to the final work that God would do when he sent his son to once for all pay the penalty for sin and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Now, the book of Exodus ends with the Israelites completing the construction of a tent where God would allow his glory to dwell among the people. And the tent was called the tabernacle. And now God was ready to give the people the prescription that they might treat their sinful condition and stay in relationship with him. And it's called the law of Moses. It's called the Levitical code. And he begins it all with the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was when a person would offer an animal, and there's different animals they could offer, specific ones, but a bull or a lamb, or if they were very poor, some birds. But they would come and offer an animal on the altar of God at the tabernacle, 
and they would do so as a propitiation for their sin. And that's a biblical word that simply means that, that instead of God's wrath falling on you for your sin, it was going to turn away and fall on this offering, fall on this substitute, so that you, the, re- you, the giver, would be reconciled to God for a time. This burnt offering like the rest of the sacrifices in the tabernacle, they spoke of Christ and they spoke of the work that he would finish not only on behalf of the nation of Israel or the ancient Jews, but would would finish on your behalf and my behalf as well. And so we as New Testament Christians, we sometimes can look back and we say, man, what's up with Leviticus? What's up with Deuteronomy? Do I really need to read this? Is there anything in there for me? There is, absolutely. And one of the things that it does is that it speaks to us of the great majesty of Jesus Christ and the incredible work that he accomplished, not just in general, not just in a vacuum, but accomplished with you in mind, accomplished on your behalf so that he could reconcile you to himself and, and, and be in a, a personal relationship with you. And so as we read these verses, we should always see them in the context of God's love for us and his giving of Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with him. So we begin in verse one and we see, then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. This may sound official and even demanding, but in reality, it reveals to us how concerned God is for the people of earth. It is not a small thing that God came down to our level. Uh, He was willing to allow his astonishing eternal glory to take up residence in a sad little desert tent. Uh, and now the, the tabernacle was a cool structure and it was ornate and all that. But at the end of the day, it was a tent in the Sinai desert. And God said, yeah, I'll come down and my glory will dwell within that tent. I will come down to your level. Now, I'm not much of a tent camper myself. I think mattresses and indoor plumbing are the tops. I, I really like those things. I think they're enjoyable. Some of you have spent some time in the third world or maybe have gone to disaster areas in the wake of things like Hurricane Katrina or those sorts of things. I doubt very much that any of you, while you were there, thought, you know what? Let's vacation here next year. We'll put our tent right here next to all this rubble where a bunch of homes used to be. Uh, We saw this week those historic fires in the state of Colorado. Praise the Lord that as far as I saw, there was no loss of life, but it's the largest wildfire, you know, destruction that they'd seen in state history. No one's thinking, yeah, let's go hang out in the, in the steaming wreckage of all of those burned down homes. And yet, what do we see God doing? God of the universe, so full of love and compassion that he came down to us. He called to us. He was the one that suggested this tabernacle in the first place. And it was the place where people could interact with him and be blessed with him and be made right by him. But that great compassion doesn't mean that God makes himself any less holy, not in the slightest. Instead, he makes a way for us to be made right in his presence. And that's what Leviticus is all about. It's what the work of Jesus is all about reconciling imperfect, ruined, sinful human beings to a perfect God who loves them. J.A. Seiss reminds us that in the tabernacle, God spoke from the mercy seat. 
Though the tabernacle is long gone, we know that the Lord still speaks from his throne of mercy and he speaks to you. He doesn't just speak in a general or generic sense. It's not like one of these robo calls that you get and you pick up the phone and it's just a recorded voice talking to you and they have no idea who you are. No, God speaks to you. He calls out to you individually. He does so in the first place through the testimony of creation. The heavens declare that God exists and they declare his work. But then beyond that, he calls to you through the specific revelation of the Bible, which God has inspired and protected and delivered to you so that you might know him and know how great his love is for you and know how he wants to direct you through your life that you might have life everlasting. On top of all of that, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is calling to, drawing you to God, the Bible says, and guiding you to the truth. And so God is calling to each one of us today. In that sense, you could put your name in the place of Moses here, and that the Lord is summoning you. He's calling you and speaking to you from his throne of mercy. You know, sometimes when an issue uh, arises or a problem arises, people will advise you to call your congressman. Uh, Or maybe you ordered something online and it's a complete failure. It's completely broken when it gets there. And they say, well, you can file a complaint with the corporate office maybe. When you do those things, calling your congressman, hey, I've called my congressman. That's all fine. I'm not against that. When you file a complaint with the corporate office, we all kind of know, yeah, nothing's going to happen. No one's really going to listen. No one's really going to hear. No problem is really going to be solved unless something very unusual happened. There's usually very little reaction when we do those things. But consider what we're seeing here. The God who made heaven and earth and he made it perfect. And then human beings were created by God and we're the ones that ruined everything. He sees the problem and he doesn't wait for us to say, hey, we've got a problem down here. No, he comes down to us. He comes to us with the solve, his fix for our failure. Verse two, speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. In Exodus 20, after the Israelites had heard the 10 commandments and after they had seen a display of God's power on Mount Sinai, they did a sad thing. They freak out. And they call Moses over and they say, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us. And they withdrew from God. And Moses' response to them said, hey, wait, we need to fear God because he is worthy to be feared and worthy to be praised. But he tells them outright, don't be afraid. Don't withdraw from God. But they do anyway. Even still, in this context, that's just what the people had done very recently to God. He showed up to say, hey, I want to talk to you. And they say, ooh, we don't want to talk to you. Talk to that guy and he'll talk to us for you. Well, even in that context, God still loves them, still cares for them, still has just as much compassion for them, even as they are withdrawing. And yet he was a gentleman. When they said, oh, don't speak to us, he didn't start going around and smacking them on the back of the head and say, I'll talk to you if I want to. Notice what he does here. They said, Moses, don't, don't let God talk to us. You talk to us. And, and God in his grace said, okay, I guess that's how we'll do things then. And so he comes to Moses and he says, hey, please give this message to my people, a message about how I can make them well and make them right and fulfill their lives and bear away their sins. And he begins to talk to them about a set of offerings that they could bring to God. For this sacrifice, the people would bring an animal from their flocks of sheep or their herds of cattle. And even here, we see the incredible grace of God. 
Yes, it could be and would be costly for them to hand over a bull of their own or a sheep of their own. But think about it this way. These were animals that were readily available to everyone in Israel. This is what they did. They were sheep herders. They were cattle herders, right? They they had these animals in abundance. God didn't say, okay, you've got a sin problem. I'll take care of your sin, but here's what you have to do. You have to take a 500-mile trip to wherever snow leopards live, find a snow leopard, bring that snow leopard back to me, and if you offer me a snow leopard, then I'll see that you're serious about having your sins dealt with, and then maybe we can talk about whether you're worth it for me to deal with your sins. Or he didn't say, okay, well, every time you come to offer me an offering, I'm God after all, so the offering has to be a really big deal, so you're going to bring me a humpback whale every single time that you come to the tabernacle. Those seem silly to us, but realistically, God could have demanded that, right? In some sense, he could have said, are you serious about having your sins forgiven? Do you really mean it that you want to have interaction with me, the God who created you? Show me how serious you are. But he didn't do that. Instead, he selected something that was right at their fingertips, something that was available to all of them right then, right now. You see, God wants to reconcile people to himself. He wants to have a regular, ongoing, personal relationship with each of us. He wants to bear away our sins and deal with these things. He's the kind of doctor who really desires to cure our terminal spiritual disease. That's what he's all about. But the offering here had to be voluntary and it had to be made of something of your own. And even if at different points in Israel's history, even if you didn't have a lamb, you had to buy it and make it your own and then offer it to the Lord. You couldn't just trap a gopher on the way or a little sparrow and say, okay, here you go. I I found this. And so I'm going to toss that on the altar. We're good, right? This had to be your animal. It was a, a willful offering where you were going to, in a very decided way, come to before the God and engage with him in this sacrifice. Now, as we've been learning in the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God didn't find some poor sap by the wayside and, off, and offer them on the cross and just say, uh, how about that guy? We'll have him die, uh, you know, and we'll just, we'll just throw him up on the cross. No, he gave his only begotten son, and we'll see it's because that was the only way that we could be saved. Now, notice who this offer is made to. He says, any of you, any of you, if any of you come before me, This is what you're going to do. It didn't matter if they were male or female, rich or poor, important or unknown. Everyone was invited. The same is true today. Jesus once cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as the Bible closes in Revelation chapter 22, we read this. The Holy Spirit says, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life freely. It's an open invitation to anyone who would be reconciled to God. If you would be forgiven of your sin and made whole and in relationship with God, you only need to come to Jesus in obedience and faith. That's all. It's an open invitation. As J. Vernon McGee wrote, none are excluded except those who exclude themselves. God doesn't keep people out of heaven. He's trying really, really hard to keep people out of hell. The only people who go to hell are people who choose to go there because they reject Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation. Verse three says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. He will bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted by the Lord. 
Only a perfect sacrifice was acceptable. Listen, you can't clean a muddy spot or a muddy spill with a muddy rag. Uh, I have little ones at home. We have lots of spills all the time. And if it wasn't so urgent to clean up everything that's being messed up, it's hilarious to see what little kids think is a good idea to clean up a mess. Start grabbing papers and stuff and putting them on top of all the milk. No, no, we'll take care of it. But if you have a muddy spill and you need to clean it up, you can't clean it up with a muddy rag. That's not going to work. Only a perfect sacrifice was acceptable. This stipulation in verse 3 was highlighting the fact that the Messiah would have to be absolutely perfect in every single way. Perfect in behavior, perfect in thought, perfect in deed, perfect in motivation, perfect in every single way. And Jesus is. He was without sin. He was without deceit. The Bible says when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. He never erred. He never failed. He never came up short. Because of his perfection, he is the one acceptable final substitute for mankind. You see, the Israelites, before the crucifixion, before Jesus came, the Israelites had to make these offerings again and again and again and again and again. It was like a transfusion, not a bone marrow transplant. But then Jesus came and he's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He paid it all once for all. The Israelites were to bring a particular offering to a particular place. These animals in this way to this spot. You see, there was no DIY option when it comes to salvation. It was true back then and it's still true today. You can't do it yourself. You can't look on YouTube and jerry-rig it. Man, anything breaks in my house, I'm like, YouTube will solve this. And I figure, you know, if I can do it, and I go, it's not quite the same, but I'll try it anyway. We can't do that when it comes to salvation. We must come to God on his terms. Otherwise, our effort is unacceptable. You know, we're familiar with acceptable forms of identification. I had to renew my license the other day, and because of California, I have to get the real ID, right? And I think they needed, how many was it? Uh, 10,000 forms of ID. And they're like going through each one. First of all, I had to submit it and they had to be like run through their computer. And then I had to go in and they went all through it, their fine tooth comb. And then they brought in a second person. And by the end, I thought, maybe I'm not me. Maybe I'm somebody else. You know, maybe I'm the Lindbergh baby. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. And so we understand this idea of acceptable forms of identification, right? This here, what we're seeing is acceptable form of propitiation, that which can turn away the wrath of God from your sin. And it has to be turned away onto the one perfect substitute that God okays, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you know what? God the Father agreed with that. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, listen to him. And the only acceptable way for Jesus to offer himself was through death. And we see that here demonstrated and pictured in the sacrifices in the tabernacle. It would do no good for the Israelites to bring gold and put that on the altar. That does nothing. You couldn't come to the altar and just leave your promises to do better. I'll do better. You couldn't come like the, you know, the proverbial gambling addict and say, well, we'll just double or nothing. Just, I, I know I blew it, but we'll double or nothing. I'll live the rest of my life perfect. That's not going to work because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So there has to be a life for life substitute, your life or someone else's life. That's how serious sin is. 
In our culture, it's easy for us to be very casual about sin and to not really think of it as that big of a deal. But sin is no piddling thing. I, you know, if I'm honest, I tend to think about sin in general as more like what's well, like a little water spill on the floor, an ounce or two of water. Yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. We can deal with that pretty easily. In fact, just leave it and it'll dry on its own, right? <laughs> My kids are spilling other stuff in the other room. You know, there's ink all over the place. But that's not what sin is. Back in 2014, it was reported that lab personnel in a laboratory in Washington found six forgotten vials of smallpox in a cardboard box. Yay! I'm so glad we have that floating around for some reason. Now, what if the spill on your floor was smallpox or was anthrax? Now it's a big deal, right? Now it's not like, just leave it. It'll dry on its own. No, it's a big deal. But that's what sin is. It is the, the most deadly thing in all the world. And here's what's even worse about it. Not only is it it the worst, most deadly thing in all the world, it is the natural byproduct of your heart and of my heart. Our hearts are pumping blood, but it's also pumping out sin because this whole creation has been ruined by human sin and is continually ruined by human sin. And this is why the Messiah had to come and why the Messiah had to die. But when you accept Jesus as your savior and substitute in him, you have redemption through his blood. Verse four says this, he is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. You may have heard some different explanations of what this word atonement means. It's one of these rich biblical words. Sometimes people talk about it being at one mint with God, and that's a, a good explanation. It's God reconciling a fallen human being to himself, bringing us into oneness with God. It can also be a term that means having your sin covered, not swept under the rug, but covered and dealt with in that way. It can also mean the wiping away of your impurity. And while the priests of Israel did offer burnt offerings daily, weekly, and monthly in a general sense for the nation, what we're talking about here in this passage is a personal, voluntary choice to go to God to be forgiven. You see, the the priests would be offering burnt offerings twice daily, every week, every month, and different times during the year for the people in general. But what we're talking about here is a person realizing, oh man, God exists, and I'm a sinner, and I want to have relationship with God. I want to be in connection with God. I need to have my sin dealt with. I need to be forgiven of my guilt and all my wrongdoings. And so, yeah, they may be doing stuff in general over here, but I'm gonna bring my own lamb. I'm gonna bring my own bull. I'm gonna go before God and say, God, I agree with you. I believe you that I'm a broken human being that needs to be made whole. I need to have my sins dealt with. Please, Lord, will you deal with my sins? And it was a voluntary, personal decision that people would be making. And we see here just how personal it was. This offerer would bring forward their splendid animal, healthy and strong and full of life. And there at the altar, he would place his hand on the head of this animal, symbolically recognizing and demonstrating that this innocent animal was going to die for something that you, the offerer, had done. And this becomes a very serious situation all of a sudden. Now, of course, the sheep and the bull had no say in it, thankfully, but Jesus Christ did. He did not have to do what he did. 
But he went willingly to the cross for your sake, enduring the shame and horrors of the suffering for the joy that was set before him, the Bible says. And that joy was you. His love for you is so great that he said, I'll lay down my own life. I will go through the most agonizing death ever conceived on the earth so that that person, so that you could have a chance to be reconciled to God. Verse five says, he is to slaughter the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to present the blood and splatter it on all sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then he is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. He is to slaughter, meaning the offerer, not the priests. It means you were the one that killed the animal. When you brought that animal in, you laid your hand on it, you cut its throat, you butchered it down yourself. What a terrible, sobering experience this must have been. Uh, last week, we, in our family, we had to put down our beloved cat, Tuna. She had, we'd had her since even before we had kids. She was old and very, very sick. It was a very poor experience. Zero stars would not recommend. Uh, and so, but as I was thinking about that and thinking about this passage, I was so thankful that I wasn't the one that had to put my beloved cat down. And it was a very sterile, you know, experience for those of you who've gone through that at a vet. Uh, but man, I can't imagine having to perform this sacrificial task, not even just once, but again and again and again, knowing that each time it was happening, not because this animal was sick, not because the animal was old or suffering or, or, or it was hurt in some way. In fact, much the opposite. The animal was the healthiest an animal could be the, the, in its prime of its strength, the prime of its life. It was a perfect, unblemished animal. Nothing is wrong with it except for that it belongs to you. And because my sin exists, I was going to transfer that to that animal and that animal is going to die because of me, because of the things that I have done, because of my imperfection and because of my guilt. My sin is the cause of this suffering and death. It was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, yours and mine. Like these burnt offerings, he was an innocent victim, but our trespasses were put on him so we might become righteous. Leviticus 1.7 says, the sons of Aaron the priest will prepare a fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Once the system was in place and the tabernacle was open for business, this fire was never put out. It was to continually burn Jesus, who is now our high priest, is always ready to receive you. The light's always on. The fire's always burning. He's always ready to be your atonement, to make you right with God and to cleanse you of your sin. All you have to do is come to him. And you don't have to bring a bull. You don't have to bring a lamb. Just your heart and your faith. Here's what the book of Romans says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Verse eight says this, Aaron's sons, the priests, are to arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on top of the burning wood on the altar. The offerers to wash its entrails and legs with water. Then the priest will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. How could something so terrible and bloody be a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Well, it's not the death that God was happy about. It was the dealing with sin and the restoration of relationship between God and man. God sent his son to die. He loves his son. He wasn't happy to see Jesus suffer, yet he was pleased to crush him as a guilt offering so we might have a chance to be saved. 
We see in this offering a specificity, a certain place, certain types of animals, certain way of breaking the offering down and washing it and arranging it. It speaks to us of the fact that this spiritual work is not haphazard. You couldn't just throw a pile of guts around and call that atonement. God was the only one who could solve this sin problem, and his way is the only way. Not our own spin on it, not our own ideas about how it should be done, not what makes sense for today, but God's way, which is revealed in Scripture very plainly for us. For the Jews, it was this system which looked forward to the final sacrifice made by the Messiah himself. For us, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, the work is finished. The sacrificing is done. Now, we don't bring lambs to church anymore. We look back in faith to the price that has already been paid to the death and resurrection of Jesus, that perfect spotless lamb of God. And so if you want to be cured of your sin and live a life in right standing before God, freed from guilt and ruin, this is the only way. It's the only cure. In 2002, a little baby named Katie Trebing was born and she was born with diamond black fan anemia. Within hours, she needed a blood transfusion or she would die. And she would need them again and again every few weeks to put off death for a little while longer. But in the end, doctors would tell her parents, these treatments cannot save your daughter. There was only one hope, a bone marrow transplant. The problem is Katie's older brother wasn't a match. And so Katie's father and mother decided to do something interesting. They decided to have another child. And in 2005, Christopher Trebing was born. Interesting, the name Christopher means bearer of Christ. I love that for this illustration. Christopher was born. Here's what Katie's mom had to say about Christopher. She said, he was always smiling, never cranky, the perfect baby. A year later, the transplant happened. Luckily, Christopher didn't have to die. He just had to be put under and they took some of his bone marrow out and he's okay today. And so they had the transplant and by 2007, Katie was taken off all medications and declared cured by her doctors. She needed to become new inside. There's nothing that she could do on her own or other human beings could treat her with medicine. No, she needed a complete transplant. She needed someone else to give of themselves to her and make her a new creation inside. Jesus Christ was born to die. That was the only way that people could be saved from sin and restored to God. But just like we see in this Old Testament system, it was not something forced upon people. It was a free invitation. You want to come? Let's do this. And I will reconcile you to God. All the work had been done. The way has been paved by the blood of Jesus. Will you go to him and receive all that he wants to give you? For those of us who are born again, we need not worry that his atoning work might wear off or that he will forget our names are written in the book of life. And thankfully, we no longer need to bring bulls or rams to the slaughterhouse at worship. Instead, we can bask in his finished work of atonement and enjoy his ongoing work of sanctification in our lives as we stay near to him, following as he leads this God who loves us so much and has done so much for us. Let's pray.